Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number four, the book of Jonah, chapters one and two. We left off last time as Jonah has just confessed that it is him that has caused this pending calamity of the ship he is on sinking because of a violent storm and most likely resulting in the loss of lives of the entire crew. Now, how's Jonah caused this? He is in the midst of a great rebellion against his God, Jehovah, and it is Jehovah that is reacting against his rebellion by hurling an intense potentially deadly storm against the ship he's on, a ship whose destination is the farthest west location of the known world, a place called Tarshish. Now we have here a clear case of what can happen when we determine to sin against God. It is as likely as not that others will be adversely affected by our personal rebellion. And while there are numerous Old Testament and New Testament verses that speak to this, they can all be summed up really by what we read in the Torah, in Exodus chapter 34. Uh, in that chapter, verses 6 through 7, we read, Adonai passed before him and proclaimed, Yudhe Yudhe Yehovah, Yehovah is God, merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in grace and truth, showing grace to the thousandth generation, forgiving offenses, crimes and sins, yet not exonerating the guilty, but causing the negative effects of the parents' offenses to be experienced by their children and their grandchildren and even by the third and fourth generations. You know, in reality, what we learn in God's Word is that about the only way our sin cannot affect others is if we live on a deserted island all by ourselves. It is a God principle. It's a governing dynamic of the universe that our personal sin can and probably will have far-reaching consequences affecting the lives of others in our family, maybe in our society, or um, even into future generations. I mean, perhaps the best example of that is the sin of Adam. I mean, his sin has affected 100% of humanity in every generation since the day he decided to listen to the evil one. A divorce, so common today, is perhaps one sin, yes, it is a sin, that we're all most familiar with. I mean, who among us has not been involved with or witnessed a divorce with children involved and not observed the damage it does to the children who are essentially innocent bystanders? And even how the children of divorce sometimes react in such a way on into adulthood, which can actually affect their own children negatively. 
How about the sin of religious leaders? Whether we want to admit it or not, much of our faith can rest on the leader, him or herself, rather than only on God. So when that leader falls into serious moral failure, some people will even walk away from their trust in Jesus. The failure of a religious leader can destroy a legacy of good works, which in turn can deprive others of wisdom that otherwise would have been so very useful to God's kingdom. In Jonah's case, the effect of his sin on others is, well, it's pretty extreme, all right, and it's immediate. It's about to cause the death of several others, the crew of the ship, who were innocent collateral damage. Let's reread some of Jonah chapter 1. Pick up your Bibles and let's reread part of Jonah chapter 1, starting at verse 10. Jonah chapter 1, verse 10. <clears throat> at this the men grew very afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you've done? For the men knew he was trying to get away from Adonai, since he told them. And they asked, what should we do to you so that the sea will be calm for us? For the sea was getting rougher all the time. Pick me up, he told them, and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will be calm for you, because I know it's my fault that this terrible storm has come over you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard, trying to reach the shore, but they couldn't, because the sea kept growing wilder against them. Finally, they cried to Adonai, please, Adonai, please don't let us perish for causing the death of this man, and don't hold us to account for shedding innocent blood, because you, Adonai, have done what you saw fit. Then they picked up Jonah, and they threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped raging. Seized with great fear of Adonai, they offered a sacrifice to Adonai and made vows. <clears throat> In our previous lesson, we spent a great deal of time on what may have seemed like super technical or ultra-detailed matters of the meaning of certain Hebrew and Greek words and terms, as well as on what the mindset and understanding of God's chosen people were concerning those words and terms in the various biblical eras. We're not going to go quite that far today. So in verse 9, Jonah identified himself as a Hebrew, and he named his God as Jehovah, and further that his God was the creator of the land and the sea. Now the implication, of course, was that what Jehovah created, he also retained control over. Therefore, the storm at sea was the direct cause and under the direct control of Jonah's God. Now, along with Jonah's confession, the lots that the crew cast in an earlier verse identifying Jonah as the wrongdoer who angered his God enough to pull them all, put them all in jeopardy, made the only remaining question they had was, well, what to do about it? Therefore, in verse 11, the crew asked Jonah bluntly, 
what must be done to him to calm these ocean waters. That is, the ship's crew inherently knew that only Jonah could solve this problem for them, but because they knew nothing about Jonah's God, then they had no idea what action was needed to appease that God. In the world of their own God systems, they also inherently knew that someone had to bear the responsibility and the, and the consequence of offending the gods. Confessing and accepting blame, well, that just wasn't enough. There was little time left to resolve this matter. The situation was getting more dire by the minute, as the final words of verse 11 explain, for the sea was getting rougher all the time. Well, their desperation increased along with the strength of the storm. Jonah's reply to their question in verse 12 was so extreme that it shocked the crew members to their core. So in verse 12, Jonah says, bodily pick him up, toss him into the frothing waters of the deep. Now let's think on that for a minute. On the surface, such an offer seems almost heroic. But in reality, if ever this was a vivid case of stubbornness to the point of self-destruction, it must be Jonah. He chose to die rather than to cease his rebellion against Jehovah. I mean, without doubt, had he confessed and told God, he sees his wrong and he's decided to demonstrate his repentance by agreeing to do as God had bid him to go and do, go to preach to the people of Nineveh. Well, the seas would have calmed. Yet, he chose his own death instead. In the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, God instructs us about the great responsibility and accountability that he places upon his prophets. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 19 through 22, whoever does not listen to my words, which he will speak in my name, will have to account for himself to me. But if a prophet presumptuously speaks a word in my name, which I did not order him to say, or if he speaks in the name of other gods, then that prophet must die. You may be wondering, well, how are we to know if a word has not been spoken by Adonai? When a prophet speaks in the name of Adonai and the prediction does not come true, that is, the word is not fulfilled, then Adonai did not speak that word. The prophet who spoke it spoke presumptuously. You have nothing to fear from him. The Gemara it's, uh, which is a part of the Talmud, applies this particular Torah teaching to Jonah. And while I am in agreement with this, another Bible passage I think even more directly applies, and it comes from the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 6 through 9, we read, But if the watchman 
sees the sword coming and does not blow the shofar so that the people are not warned, and then the sword comes and takes any one of them, that one is indeed taken away in his guilt. But I will hold the watchman responsible for his death. Likewise, you human being, I have appointed you as watchmen for the house of Israel. Therefore, when you hear the word from my mouth, warn them for me. And when I tell the wicked person, wicked person, you will certainly die, and you fail to speak and warn that wicked person to leave his way, and then that wicked person will die guilty, I will hold you responsible for his death. On the other hand, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, he doesn't turn from his way, then he will still die guilty, but you, you will have saved your own life. Jonah openly said and believes that it is on the account of his refusal to warn the wicked of Nineveh, as God has instructed him to do, that the ship is about to sink and all on board are about to die. Biblically speaking, the only possible penalty for this great act of sin is the prophet's own death. Now, I want to remind you that Ezekiel is speaking of the responsibility of God's prophets, not so much every person who worships that prophet's God. Over the many years of teaching the Bible, I have cautioned that a person who has a great desire to be a prophet for God needs to think on this desire very carefully. First, God appoints His prophets. He doesn't ask for resumes. He doesn't go by the sincerity of the person who desires such a role in the kingdom. Now, in Judeo-Christianity, and in that term, I'm including what every, whatever every believer, and Yeshua might call him or herself, I have seen and spoken to so many who want to be or already think of themselves as prophets. Over and over, many of these folks will make predictions that do not come to pass. And such failures don't seem to phase them or even cause them to pause. They just confidently make more predictions and always in the name of the Lord. These brethren are precisely what the Bible calls false prophets. False prophets, only sometimes the Bible refer to prophets of false gods. It is only God's great mercy that allows them to continue to live because the biblical penalty for being a false prophet or even a legitimate prophet like Jonah who willfully doesn't tell the truth or refuses to go do what God tells him to do, it's their death. I mean, it's that serious of a matter. After all, it, 
if you believe a person is a God-appointed prophet and they foretell something that doesn't happen or it's not true, how does this reflect on your understanding of God? Especially if you defend that person as a prophet or worse, you go on listening to them. Maybe someday they'll get one right. You know, it's nice that Jonah was willing to accept this punishment. It was nice that the to maybe spare the lives of the crew. But the depth of Jonah's arrogant, self-willed determination to not take God's oracle to the people of Nineveh because he hated them so much, well, it's just difficult to fathom. Jonah is not a hero. He's what none of us ought to ever aspire to be. Ironic as it may seem, this pagan Canaanite crew had far more mercy than Jonah. God's prophet just didn't even measure up to them. They, they just couldn't bring themselves to send Jonah overboard to his death. Rather, they decided at their own peril to try to fight off this storm. So they rode hard towards the shore. Jonah's advice to them was appalling. In their eyes, because of their attachment to pagan god systems, they could see and understand no other than Jonah offering himself as a human sacrifice to the god of the sea in order to appease him and thus hopefully calm the waters. And yet, they were not willing to let Jonah do that, even if it was in their own best interests. What the sailors don't entirely get is that just as the sea is under God's dominion, so is dry land. Therefore, their valiant efforts to defeat the sea by rowing the battered vessel towards shore, well, that's doomed. The harder they row, the rougher it became the seas in opposition. See, here's a God principle that seems even the most seasoned of believers has trouble remembering sometimes. Running away from the Lord's will is ultimately impossible. It's impossible. A common term used especially in allegorical Bible teaching is that for a believer to work, to foil or ignore God's will is to kick against the goad. Actually, this term is borrowed by the biblical writers from the Greek and Roman cultures, where it meant to imply a ruinous resistance to something. I mean, it's fascinating just how far humans will go to refuse to submit to God. I mean, I think there can be but a few believers that don't know about this following passage in the book of Revelation 
concerning the end times apocalypse that depicts just that scenario. Starting out in Revelation chapter 16, verse 1, it says, I heard a loud voice from the sanctuary say to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of God's fury. And then a few verses later, after three of those seven bowls of God's wrath had been emptied upon mankind, starting in verse 7, we read, Then I heard the altar say, Yes, Adonai, God of heaven's armies, your judgments are true and just. So then the fourth one poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was permitted to burn people with fire. People were burned by the intense heat, yet they cursed the name of God, the one who had authority over these plagues, instead of turning from their sins to give him glory. Well, the fifth one poured out his blood on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom grew dark, and people gnawed on their tongues in pain, and yet... They cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores. They did not turn from their sinful deeds. Man, that's stubborn. I'm going to switch to application of this message for a few minutes. So I want you to just please indulge me because it's going to affect many of us. Even the most devastating, catastrophic, deadly time period the world is ever going to know, the end times, when there will no longer be much doubt among the earth's population about the divine source of all this unprecedented, unyielding global pain and suffering. The people who either formally trusted the God of Israel but gave it up somewhere along the way are those who never trusted it at all, willfully determined to die at war with God rather than to die at peace with Him. They will not, at any cost, humble themselves. They will not repent and ask God for forgiveness and mercy. And you know, we see this all around us today. I mean, we'd have to be blind not to. And apparently it's been this way to one degree or another since the dawn of humanity. You know, I have personally witnessed this mindset at funerals and in hospital visits with the dying or even those that just face the possibility of death. People who know they have behaved wickedly and they're facing the reality of their own imminent death and they may be facing a terrible future eternally. Yet even when offered the opportunity to repent and to accept the mercy Christ affords, they refuse it. Just refuse it. I mean, this is irrationality <laughs> at its zenith. I mean, such irrationality among normally rational people can have none other than an evil spiritual source. Otherwise, our innate common sense and instinct for self-preservation would kick in. And indeed, even the human nature of old that we're all born with, the one that the Jews call the Yetzer Harah, that's our evil inclination, leans decidedly towards a wicked spiritual source rather than a good one. 
You know, with the makeup of 21st century believers, and even with modern people who are traditionalists, but they're irreligious, they, I think we, wonder and worry about what we're observing in this world as regards gender, as an inexplicable, out-of-control, wildfire-like spread of irrational thought and behavior. How, we ask, since the days of Adam and Eve until just a couple of decades ago, can the simple biological reality of gender suddenly be challenged? I mean, there's no more profoundly fundamental self-evident fact of humanity than the possible two genders we're all born with. Nor has it been anything changeable at our whim, nor has anywhere in time in history has it spontaneously self-mutated into something different. Something is wrong here. And yet we have an enormous, nearly global-wide tsunami of elites, intellectuals, secular and religious leaders, and just plain common folk who have bought into the concept of gender fluidity or gender by choice or the erasure of gender altogether. I mean, the only possible way this can occur, other than mass insanity, is if it comes from the powerful unseen realm of the spirit world. I mean, I beg you to hear me on this. This is not an exaggeration. There is nothing else with enough power and influence that can account for it. And I'm convinced that the willful ignorance of our Judeo-Christian institutions that imply or outright teach that a profoundly robust and formidable spirit world is impossible, mostly it's just a myth, is why so few seem to not be able to see it. I mean, what this means is that human persuasion to try to get the irrational to shuck it off and return to rationality, well, that has no hope of success because it's a misdirected mindset and effort. In reality, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I want you to notice something about what Paul said that I took from Ephesians 6.12. He said, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Hmm. In the Greek New Testament manuscripts, the word is uh, epernonius, and the Greek lexicons agree that it means having to do with heaven, with, with heaven or it's something of heavenly origin. I mean, I've never heard that statement dealt with before in a sermon or a, or a Bible teaching, perhaps because Paul is saying there are spiritual forces of evil that exist in heaven. 
Now, I never thought much about this until I learned a deeper biblical understanding of the divine council of heaven populated by spirit beings called Elohim. Powerful, the most powerful of created spirit beings, second only to God. And that we learned that some of them rebelled. We learned that God cursed them with eventual death, just as He would later on curse mankind with death for our rebellion. Now, nothing in the Bible implies that all the corrupted Elohim were kicked out of heaven. Paul is revealing a truth to us that the ancient Hebrews of his day already believed and understood. But here's the question, do you believe it? I can tell you that my upbringing in church essentially taught me less to not believe the corrupt things can exist in heaven, but rather to simply ignore the possibility. The thing is that until we do believe that this mass delusion about gender that has overcome our world societies is a result of a wicked spiritual influence, and we react accordingly through sincere prayer to the Father, along with our adopting a soul-deep determination to live by His moral code, no matter the personal cost, there's no hope for our society to come out of its present irrationality that leads only to death and destruction, an irrationality that has thoroughly enveloped us. I mean, the result of this irrationality is a crumbling of formerly vibrant, orderly societies into chaos, confusion, hypersensitivity, lawlessness, and perversion of every imaginable kind at every level. To fight fire with fire, we must fight the right battle. The right battle is a spiritual battle. You know, it does a little good only to try to openly combat this abomination on a purely human intellectual basis, which is actually our instinct to do. Once evil takes sufficient hold of us, then we will indeed choose death over submission to God. Just what Jonah was doing, no matter how irrational that might be. So after apparently an apparently valiant effort to row their boat to safety, avoid having to participate in killing Jonah, well, the crew gave up. The crew's options are now limited to one. <laughs> so they're now depicted as calling out to God for help. Once again, my personal pet peeve pops up its ugly head. Our English Bibles obscure what is actually said by covering over the pagan sailors calling out to Jacob's God by name, and instead God's name is substituted with the word Lord, or Adonai in the complete Jewish Bible, which means the same thing. But let's not misunderstand. By no means have the sailors converted. They've not thrown aside all their gods, switched their allegiance to Jehovah, 
Rather, they simply added Yahweh to the mix of gods they accept and bow, to, bow down to. He's just another god they're now aware of, one they respect, and so are in no way reluctant to call on him. They have no problem thinking that somehow they're being disloyal to their other gods. They're not. What the crew's prayer is about is that with all of their efforts having failed, they realize they're going to have to do the unthinkable. They are going to have to do as Jonah said and throw him overboard. This means certain death for Jonah. But since it was these men who would essentially execute him if they did as Jonah said, might this mean that Jonah's God will turn around and blame them for what's happened? including them tossing Jonah overboard to his death. So they beseech his God, Jehovah, not to blame them, to please not punish them for doing what Jonah said had to be done. I mean, what a contrast. God's prophet, Jonah, he refuses to call out to the Lord, let alone obey him, while the sailors frantically call out to Jonah's God, asking to be forgiven when they do obey him. Kind of ironic, isn't it? But these sailors still have a problem. It was still the common mindset of that era that when a person is killed by someone, then the deceased's family is virtually obligated to hunt down the perpetrator and kill him in vengeance no matter how just the killing might have been. In fact, most cultures and societies that era operated that way. Shedding innocent blood was extremely serious. It involved the death penalty for those who do so. Would Jonah's God see what they were about to do to Jonah as an act of violence against the innocent? So, in what I strongly feel was their collective sincere mindset, the sailors say to Yehovah that they have little other choice but to believe Jonah is telling them the truth, and so to kill him is following Yehovah's will. Yet, they can't be certain of it. So, in verse 15, they reluctantly pick Jonah up, throw him into the raging waters, and immediately the sea went calm. And with relief, they knew their lives had been spared and that they had done the will of Jonah's God who expressed his pleasure by bringing the storm to an abrupt end. Well, verse 16 leaves no doubt that they all believed that Jonah's God could do whatever he wanted to do. In response, we are told that the relieved crew sacrificed and made vows probably to Jehovah. Now, there's no consensus in Bible academia as to whether this means they made an actual animal sacrifice on board that ship, or that they essentially promised to make a sacrifice once they reached the shore. Now, the usual argument against them making an immediate onboard sacrifice is they had no animals left to make one with, or that this is not something anyone would ever do on a ship. My response is, 
that there's nothing that says that every last bit of cargo was thrown overboard. Some animals could have remained. Besides, live animals were regularly brought on board to be used for food, for long journeys. As to the matter of whether shipboard sacrifices occurred, the consensus that this didn't ever occur seems to be incorrect. In his scholarly research book about ancient seafaring, Jean Roger says this, Routine ceremonies for sea voyages were of two kinds, those for departures and those for arrivals. And when a departure was to be made, those who were about to sail would first make a pilgrimage to a nearby temple to obtain divine protection. Then on board ship, there would be a ceremony, not in port when the ship weighed anchor, but rather when the open sea was reached. The ceremony consisted of a sacrifice and prayers to the ship's God and to the divinities of the sea. Likewise, when a ship was about to put into port, before it actually entered the port, there was another ceremony, this time one of thanksgiving. During the course of the sailing, other sacrifices took place whenever an especially famous sanctuary was passed. Or in the face of dangerous, serious enough situations to require recourse to the gods. This is why certain figurative representations of ship show an altar located at the stern, an altar that must not have been portable. Well, this confirms to me that the narrator Jonah's story was correct. The sailors, soon after tossing Jonah into the sea and the storm halting, they made a sacrifice on board to thank Jehovah. Well, let's move on to chapter 2 now. But before I, we read it, I, I want to set the stage so that you'll better grasp what's going on. The reality is that the first two verses and then the last verse are just typical prose narrative. That means it's just kind of regular writing. But everything in between, verses 3 through 10, are a complete composed psalm that was inserted. The, palm, the psalm is done in typical ancient Hebrew poetry, literary style. Say it another way. The first two verses are the writer of Jonah essentially introducing the psalm. Next is the full psalm. And then finally, the last verse of chapter 2 comes after the psalm concludes, and then it moves the story of Jonah forward. Now I'm going to have a lot to say about this psalm after we read this chapter. So open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2, and let's read it all. Jonah chapter 2. Adonai prepared a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And from the belly of the fish, Jonah prayed to Adonai his God, and he said, Out of my distress I called to Adonai, and he answered me. From the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you threw me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood enveloped me. All your surging waves passed over me, and I thought, I have been banished from your sight. 
but I will again look at your holy temple. The water surrounded me, threatened my life. The deep closed over me, seaweed twined around my head. I was going down to the bottom of the mountains, to a land whose bars would close me in forever. But you brought me up alive from the pit, Adonai, my God. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered Adonai and my prayer came into you, into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols give up their source of mercy. But I, speaking my thanks aloud, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation comes from Adonai. Then Adonai spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. <clears throat> so, in a most surprising twist to our story, Jonah, who has been chucked overboard at his own urging by a most reluctant and troubled crew, is swallowed alive by a great fish where he remained as though entombed or in a fleshly prison for three days and three nights. Now, if the story of Jonah consisted of only the first chapter, then the obvious conclusion would be that he, of course, drowned. They were in deep water at that time, many miles from land, and even in calm waters, he had no hope whatsoever of rescue or survival. But surprise, he doesn't die. Out of nowhere comes this giant fish of some sort that swallows him whole, thus saving him from a watery grave. Now, the story gives us no clue what kind of fish the giant fish was. At some point in history, it was determined it had to be a whale. So, that's how it's mostly viewed today, but just remember, even though we know scientifically that a whale is a sea mammal that made it, made it biologically different from a fish, such differences were not known at that time. If it swam in the ocean, it was a fish, however big, however small, however it looked. In addition, no attempt was made to explain how a human could survive inside the belly of a fish. Now, naturally, just as we all do, we moderns still scratch our heads in concert with our ancient ancestors, and we wonder about all this because it seems utterly impossible. But for our ancestors, as it ought to be for us, this scenario, scenario instantly says that what happened could only be an intervention by God. Nothing else could account for it. Now, for the modern church and synagogue, however, where the concept of miracles is only still lightly accepted, or in many denominations it's rejected altogether, then here is where the story of Jonah becomes just a fun fable with a good moral. Now, if we've walked with the Lord long enough, then by now we ought to know that nothing is beyond the limits of our Lord to control. Nothing. Miracles are just part of His nature. He doesn't strain to do them. A miracle, at its core, 
is but a divine act that's beyond the bounds of anything a human can duplicate or that nature in its normal state can equal. God, as nature's creator, can use nature for any purpose He determines it in whatever way He determines it. I mean, that is the most marvelous of news for believers. But it is also the most laughable and at the same time terrorizing to skeptics, mockers, and non believers. The next significant fact presented is that Jonah has not only somehow remained alive within the innards of this great fish for three days and three nights, he actually began to carefully re examine his situation, what led him to it what it means in a higher level of understanding. And as I urged in the first lesson of Jonah, the introduction, we must not get lost in the weeds by paying too much attention to Jonah and assuming that the moral point of the story is about revealing who Jonah really was. It is far more about revealing who God really is. The anonymous writer of Jonah tells us that it was from inside the belly of that whale that Jonah prayed what comes next. What comes next is an eloquent psalm that thanks God for the mercy he's been shown. The writer, often called the narrator by theologians, makes it clear that this psalm was prayed at that time and not later after the ordeal was over. This fact actually muddies the waters for many Bible scholars because they doubt why the action would suddenly pause and then this complete psalm would be inserted. It truly is a curious thing. It just can't be so easily dismissed. So I want to explain the issues for the sake of intellectual honesty. This is the part of the story, after all, that is the most controversial simply because of its setting, Jonah alive inside a great fish. Now the first thing we need to address is where this psalm might have come from and also why it's placed where it is. Well, the first fork in the road of deciding the source of this psalm is that either Jonah composed it and spoke it while he was inside the whale, as the narrator says he does, or perhaps Jonah composed it later after he'd gone to Nineveh and returned home. But nonetheless, the narrator thought it made for a better story if he had done it inside the great fish. The next fork is whether this was composed by Jonah at any point and handed down by tradition to the narrator, or if it was composed by someone else entirely, whether before or after Jonah's time. I mean, after that, yet another fork is encountered. Was this psalm composed for the express purpose of being part of the book of Jonah? Or was it borrowed from some other already existing document and stuck in here because it seemed to fit or to embellish the story of Jonah quite well. I'm here to tell you these are legitimate questions. 
And considering the highly important part of the story of Jonah that this psalm plays, it's reasonable to ask them. And it is necessary to face it and address it. So let's begin with a basic question. Is the way that Jonah's story is constructed with regular narrative, that is typical dialogue and description, interrupted by a poem, by a psalm, unique to the book of Jonah as compared to the rest of Holy Scripture? Answer? No. It's quite common in the Bible and in other Jewish literature of that era. Virtually the entire Torah, first five books of the Bible, and all of the prophets use this method of writing and recording events and telling of their stories. Poems by gifted writers of poetry have the advantage of being able to say it all in beautifully memorable few words that impact us the most. That is, the art of poetry can best describe and communicate actions or emotions to their fullest, whereas stark narrative it just can't. In a famous line from the well-known science fiction movie called Contact, a film inspired by the late Carl Sagan, we find our heroine somehow transported to a different dimension using alien-provided technology. Humanity has been given an invitation of sorts to visit with this advanced species of aliens, and she was the scientist chosen among all others on planet Earth to go as humanity's representative and hopefully make contact with the machine's alien creators, but then also to bring back with her a record of all that she saw and heard, especially to prove the doubters wrong. Who else but a scientist would be trained and equipped for this kind of a job? However, when she arrived at the alien world and began to speak into her recording device what she was witnessing, she became so awestruck about the incredible beauty and wonder and the complete peace that she was encountering, she says, they sent the wrong person. They should have sent a poet. One of a rather standard characteristics of biblical prophets was that they were trained, expert poets. And while that can't be said of every last one, it can absolutely be said as a general rule of thumb. So that fact alone says that it's certainly possible that the psalm we read in Jonah chapter 2 was indeed written by a deeply affected and moved Jonah as he tried to contemplate what was happening to him, what caused it all, what the higher meaning of it was. On the other hand, psalms, being basically poetry, are usually intentionally created to be non-specific in their nature. That is, they're much like Proverbs. They aren't inextricably tied to a single event or a single circumstance or occasion, even though it may have been one event that inspired its writer to compose it. 
A psalm's application is general in nature. It's pertinent to every age of history, and this is proved by the fact that throughout the centuries, psalms have drawn people of every era to them because of what they say to us as human beings in so many different situations. So was this psalm that forms the bulk of chapter 2 an already existing psalm written by an author unknown to us, a psalm that just happened to work seamlessly with the story of Jonah? So that's why it was chosen to be inserted. There is nothing so specific about Jonah's psalm that it could be only understood within the context of the Jonah story. So yes, that cannot be dismissed as a possibility. But if this was the case, then this psalm has been lost to history in all but the saga of Jonah. We just don't find it anywhere else. Finally, there's this issue. The psalm of Jonah is definitely one of thanksgiving. And there's much belief in the world of theology that thanksgiving ought to be the last thing on Jonah's mind, as he must currently be living in a state of misery inside that whale. Much more appropriate, especially considering the man Jonah and his willful behavior, would be a psalm that expresses his desperation, perhaps asking for a rescue. Those that think this way believe this psalm is misplaced and it even doesn't even have any business in the book of Jonah. Rather, it was added a long time later by some redactor. Well, these are all valid discussion points. I, I just want to make you aware of, but I'm going to cut to the chase. Although this psalm indeed could be applied to our giving praise and thanks to God over some great mercy He showed us in any number of circumstances, probably best suited to, have been, to our being rescued, having been rescued from imminent death, it perfectly captures the essence of Jonah's situation and really is rather pivotal in the ongoing story. I mean, if, if it weren't there, this would be a pretty incomplete story. The psalm especially helps to expose Jonah's hypocrisy of being shown incredible mercy from God in the midst of his ongoing disobedience, when certainly none was due to him versus Jonah's refusal to take a message of God's warning to the disobedient people of Nineveh who Jonah felt had no such mercy due to them. That a psalm could fit such a story as Jonah's so well and is indeed needed to advance this story to make its ultimate point, but that the psalm was just a general one plucked from an already written book of psalms is just so unlikely it stretches credibility. Jonah had the expertise, he had the time, he had the circumstance, and the motive to compose this psalm just as we find it in his book. And there is no evidence at all against it except skeptics can come up with imaginative alternatives. Now my mindset is, and it's going to continue to be, that when there is no strong evidence to reject 
the validity of statements in the Bible, then those statements ought to be taken as authentic. Okay, we're going to stop here and begin to examine, examine Jonah's psalm the next time we meet.